What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of Sports and Torts, where every week we sit down with our friends, peers, and colleagues and talk about those things that are of most interest to us, sports, law, and business. As always, it is our goal to educate, inform, and entertain you, and we sincerely appreciate you taking a listen. I'm very excited about this show. Today, we have lawyer royalty in the house. I mean, we have one of the best of the best. Joining us today is Moses Kim of The Moses Firm. Moses has his own law firm here in Atlanta, Georgia, which specializes exclusively in representing plaintiffs in medical malpractice suits. And I would add, he does it as well as anybody in this state. Like me, Moses has a background working as a defense lawyer, defending the same types of cases he now files on behalf of plaintiffs. And this perspective, I think, will bring about a very interesting discussion today. Moses, how are you, buddy? Welcome to the show. I am doing great, and I am super excited to be here. And I just have to comment, that was an incredibly kind, uh, an overly kind introduction. Uh, but I'm honored to be here on this show with you and uh, excited about having a great conversation today. Well, well, I mean every word of it. I really do. Um, I first want to set the stage. We are together here at my conference room at the law firm. Um, you were kind enough a few weeks back to take me and a few others out to a holiday lunch um, just to, I think you said just because, which was great. And I remembered that you ordered, um, a bourbon mule, a bourbon mule at the bar, right? Yes. A Kentucky mule. A Kentucky you. mule. I'm sorry. And, and then, yes, with bourbon. With bourbon. Now I've had Moscow mules, um, but I'd never had a bourbon mule and I'm a, or a Kentucky mule and I'm a, I'm a bourbon guy. Um, so I ordered one as well that day and really enjoyed it. So I thought, Hey, what better drink to have today while we're chatting than a Kentucky Mule. So we just poured one. Um, I got some Bardstown bourbon straight from Kentucky. Have you ever had this before? Um, I have, and it's excellent. It's very good. We combined, we have our copper mugs. We poured some ginger beer. We have some mint. We have some limes. And it's delicious, I think, right? I love it. I I'll, love it. And I love the made in the USA uh, flavor here. There you go. And all we're missing really is, is the Kentucky Derby being in our background. Which I've never been. Have you ever been in the Derby before? I have not, but that's one of the bucket list things uh, that I think all grown men should have in their lives. And I've known a lot of friends that have gone and had an incredible time. I guess uh, I, I still need to mark that off la- off my list. I'm looking forward to doing that eventually. It's on my list, too. Um, it's one of those destinations that at some point you've just got to get to. My, my daughter's birthday is May 2nd, and the Derby always ends up being that weekend or that week. So it's kind of cool. Like, we're usually around. We'll watch the Derby. Um, but I haven't gone there yet. I have to wait until she gets a little older to be able to sneak away over her birthday weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I'm waiting for one of you guys to strike it real big and take me on a jet and uh, let me sit in the stand so I don't have to sweat out in the field like uh, the other folks. There you go. I like it. Hey, it's career goals. We can always inspire <laughs> to this. Right. Well, anyway, um, tell us a little about you. Tell us about your background. Um, tell us about your firm and, and how it's set up, kind of work you do. Well, um, I am a missionary slash preacher's kid. Uh, I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where my parents were missionaries and raised in a small town in Alabama called Enterprise, where my father was the pastor of the First Korean Baptist Church. Um, I have, uh, I'm Korean by heritage, obviously, uh, given that church's name, uh, but grew up in South Alabama, which is a really odd uh, juxtaposition of cultures there, but it made me who I am. And I've got two older sisters, and uh, one lives in New York, the other in California, and then ended up going to college here in Atlanta at Emory, and then North Carolina for law school. And uh, I married my college sweetheart, Diana, and we have three kids and live here in Dunwoody and practice all throughout Georgia and predominantly in Metro Atlanta, but all throughout Georgia. And I'm a MedMal lawyer. Very good. And the diversity that you bring to the job has to pay dividends. I mean, you've, you've seen lots of different ways of life. You've been with lots of different types of people. How, how does that help you in your practice relate to your clients? Oh, I think uh, it's critical. Um, first of all, doing what we do, uh, you have to at least be a half-decent human being. Um, and it's critical for you to understand how other people are and think. And having grown up in, in South Alabama, I got to see a more conservative um, but great Southern culture in Alabama. So it gives me some insight into um, the Southern culture and how conservative people think. And also, you know, growing up as an immigrant in the United States, 
um, and in a uh, what I would consider a Southern Baptist Caucasian community um, adds another whole another layer of understanding um, to your life and I think it's just critically important in, in what we do to try to understand people uh, even when their views whether religious or political or cultural are starkly different from yours and you've got to try to find a way to connect with people who uh, think differently than you and you know my background I think has helped me in, in that way. So what brought you to Atlanta? After, you know, I know, well, we, well, I know we'll talk about your law school. We'll talk about where you went to undergrad. But how did you end up here? Um, it's actually a bit serious. Um, but the, the bottom line is my father, uh, he got really ill. He had liver disease. He was a Southern Baptist pastor and did not drink alcohol, but he got non-alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver. And, Josh, I don't think you know this story. Um, but he um, ended up getting uh, cirrhosis of the liver and had to have a liver transplant. And uh, he ended up having a liver transplant um, at Emory, and that's how I first came to learn about Emory. Um, and back at that time, that surgery was probably like a 15-hour major transplant surgery, which it is. But now I think they've cut it down to that like six hours. Um, but in any event, um, that's how I got to Atlanta and learned about Emory. And unfortunately, my father passed away from um, uh, illness after getting pneumonia after uh, he was on all those immunosuppressants. Um, but that's how I learned about Emory and Atlanta and uh, came here, and uh, the rest is history. Thank you for sharing with that. I, I don't think we ever have gone into much specifics about that, so appreciate you uh, you talking about it. Is that where your met love for medicine first began, you think? You know, like a lot of other students that went to Emory, um, and I would jokingly put out that, you know, 75% of the students going into uh, a school like Emory is, uh, is pre-med in the first semester. I was one of the quick casualties that once I realized that you have to put in so much work in the bio and the chem lab, particularly on Saturday mornings when the sun is beaming through the windows and the birds are chirping outside and you're wondering to yourself, what the heck are you doing in a chemistry lab or a bio lab? I was a, a, a quick casualty, and I got on the pre-law route. I had some friends as well. I went to the University of Georgia, as you know. Um, I had some friends that did that same thing. They started started pre-med, took Biology 101, Biology 102, and then I think I went to Biochem or something. And, and kind of like you said, they had the allure of the football games and downtown Athens and the bars, and um, you know they, they went different paths. But I, I, you know, when I talk to you about your cases. Um, you talk like a doctor. You have an understanding of the medicine as if you went to medical school and took all those classes. So how, how did you get that knowledge? Well, uh, that's another kind thing for you to say, but I'll tell you um, it's critical for you as a med lawyer to understand the medicine. And basically where I learned how to do it was at my first job up in North Carolina right out of law school at a place called Faison and Gillespie. And their bread and butter was uh, medical malpractice cases for patients and consumers. Um, and that's where I learned it. And I think you start looking at medical records long enough and learning the lingo, learning the abbreviations uh, that exist there over time. It just kind of creeps in through osmosis. And then with every new case, you're always reading the literature, talking to your experts and learning the medicine. And I would say that the dynamics of the cases are pretty much the same, but the language and the specifics of the medicine change from case to case. You, I, I had mentioned... Um that you, well, you started that plaintiff's firm in North Carolina. And then when I first met you in Atlanta, you were working for a defense firm doing medical malpractice defense. That's right. Um, one of my very close friends from law school, Brian Mathis, was one of your coworkers. And, and Brian, shout out to him, another brilliant medical lawyer. Um, he introduced us. That's right. So, so you were defending the cases that you're now prosecuting, and what you're what you're mentioning is that that's how you learned a lot of the medicine. That's how you learned a lot of how to do these cases. Is that right? Absolutely. So after I left uh, the plaintiff's firm in North Carolina, my next my second job, other uh, and then I ended up starting my own law firm after that. But my second job was at a med mal defense firm, and we did uh, almost all the work for tenant healthcare and HCA healthcare, which owned a ton of hospitals throughout Georgia. And I think just on the defense side, uh, you get so many reps and looking at so many different cases, different types of med mal cases. You see so many uh, different types of lawyers bringing those cases, some who are extraordinarily skilled and some who are not that skilled. 
And through all those reps, not only do you get a repetition in the medicine, you get a lot of repetition on what to do and what not, not to, to do, do in cases. So, so you use the analogy getting a lot of reps, which I don't think I've heard that term used in that way before, but that's exactly right. I mean, that's the way I kind of view um, my experience too. I, I was at a defense firm for 12, 14 years doing defense work. And the amount of reps you get is un, it's, it's, it's crazy because tons of cases as an associate, as a partner, looking at all different kinds. And so you've seen just about everything, you know, doing that kind of work. Well, if you consider yourself an expert in anything, and this is what I tell my own children, you just don't wake up and become an expert. Steph Curry didn't wake up and become the, the most prolific three-point shooter of all time. And, you know, baseball players, they don't become extraordinary pitchers um, by just waking up. You have to practice at it. You got to work at it. You get all those reps in. And, uh, you know, it's like the 10,000-hour rule that— Malcolm Gladwell. Exactly. I was about to, I was about to say that. That was my, my comeback. or my, my, my What I was going to contribute is that that's what his book says. You need 10,000 hours to become an expert. It's about reps. And uh, when you get lots of reps, whether it's in sports or in torts, uh, you know, you just get— skilled at it. And I think that's uh, one of the important things that lawyers have to do. Uh, they have to become skilled in their craft. It's like anything else. You know, I don't have the fortune of being able to hit a golf ball or shoot a basketball like these pro athletes do, but, you know, we're pro lawyers and pro plaintiff's lawyers. And so we've got to treat our craft as such. What was it that made you make the decision to leave that defense firm? Because you were, you were doing very well there. You were very successful to start your own plaintiff's firm. Well, I think uh, because in my first job uh, at a plaintiff's firm, I was able to see what plaintiff's work was like um, and knowing that you can really and significantly improve someone's life and their quality of life or help a family uh, get answers to something that happened. Um, I think that was really important to me. On the defense side, you're just running through those cases. You end up trying them and hopefully getting a defense verdict or settling them out, and it's just on to the next case. And uh, no one really pats you on the back. You don't really see the corporation uh, have any any significant improvement in what they do in terms of patient safety. And uh, it's just it's just a, a a hamster wheel that I wasn't satisfied with. Um, and so I really wanted to go back to helping patients and obviously um, being able to do it well is also financially rewarding as well. And so we always want to uh, do our best for our clients so our law firm does well as well. Um, but uh, it was just because I'd seen it, because I knew it made a difference in people's lives. Um, and, uh, you know, professionally, I found it more rewarding. I, I wanted to go back to representing patients. I agree 100 percent. You know, the, the reward the satisfaction that comes from helping an individual through a very tough stretch of their life and getting whatever the good result is, whether it's a trial or settlement or whatever it might be, it just feels better, right? Than, than calling the hospital that you, you defend and say summary judgment was just awarded and they say, okay, thanks, Moses. What about the next case, right? The, the, the handwritten letters that we receive from clients after settlements, the pictures of things that they have purchased because of the money we got them, like, that's pretty awesome. And then that, 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 for me at least, that's what makes me want to come to work. And, and I know you feel the very same way. You know, I, I try not to cry at work, uh, but the very few times I have cried is when I've been able to, and I'm saying too much already, but um, when I've been able to tell clients that their case is settled, um, they start crying. And that makes me emotional. A, they're crying because something very sudden and very traumatic like their loved one you know died suddenly when they weren't supposed to after routine surgery or they've been living on a shoestring budget just to begin with and then you finally gotten them a sum of money where they can really uh, improve their quality of life with a disability they have that was caused by a medical error um, because that is so impactful to them they start crying and you really see the magnitude of what you can do for people and what you can do for society. And I take a lot of pride in that. You know, MedMount lawyers, we don't get promoted as being, you know, the salt of the earth people um, because, you know, there's a lot of healthcare heroes out there. You know, we go to doctors as well and we rely on doctors to do a good job. And, you know, I love the doctors that I go see and the doctors that are friends of mine, but there's always that 1% who are the bad apples that are reckless and unsafe that, you know, need to be held accountable. Um, but when you're 
when you realize that you can really make a difference in someone's life by holding those people accountable, it really changes the way that you look at these cases um, and changes the way that you treat these cases when you see what you can do for folks. Yeah, the medical malpractice cases, I mean, they're, they're no joke. I mean, they, they, they come from catastrophic events and catastrophic results. And they're, like you said, very high stress. Um, they're contested tooth and nail. The smartest lawyers in the state are typically hired to defend the doctors, right? Um, doctors and hospitals have uh, positions towards settlements that truck wreck cases and car wreck cases that I handle don't. And what I mean by that is that um, they don't just settle cases to put money to make it go away. They settle only cases that they feel they did something wrong, right? Um, you, you can't just file a lawsuit and say, okay, they're going to pay me 50000 100000 make it go away. They don't do that, right? So every case you get involved in, you're investing lots of money into it, lots of resources, lots of time, and you're like, this is a case that is probably going to go to trial. So you made the decision to go into that arena, and, and you know, your only cases you work on are that. So... Um, what made you decide to just say, okay, Moses, I'm going to focus on just these cases. I'm going to invest what it takes and this is what I'm going to do. You know, that, that's a really interesting question because, um, I wouldn't say that I fell into it, but it's like, that's what I knew how to do. And it ended up being, um, a great area for me because there was a need for it. Um, there were a lot of, uh, plaintiffs lawyers out there and a lot of other lawyers out there that didn't have a resource where they could send, uh, their clients to who needed, uh, some help in a medical malpractice case to fi- to even figure out whether there was a medical malpractice case. And so it was a void that I felt like I was filling. Um, and through uh, an experience and skill that I could bring to the table, um, and there just wasn't enough med mal lawyers out there doing it well. I mean, there's certainly great med mal lawyers out there, but there's a lot more cases than there are great lawyers doing it. I think that's, you hit the nail on the head. Um, we all get calls with medical malpractice cases. Most of them are, are not medical malpractice cases. Even I, you know, my untrained medical eye can tell that. But there's some where I'm like, you know, that sounds like that shouldn't have happened. That's an outcome that wasn't supposed to be that way. And so what I typically tell those, those you know, potential clients is that I'm not the right person to vet their case. I say, call my friend Moses. And so you get a lot of calls from people like me referring, you know, referring, you know, referring these clients to you so that you have to basically vet the case and you have to tell them, you know, this is a case or it's not, and here's why. And I know that you spend a lot of your time doing that. And I know that you are very selective in saying, yes, this is a case that we're going to take. So, 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 so I know it's a very long question, but talk about that. And then what your kind of decision tree is when you go down, okay, this is a case that my firm is going to take on. Um, First of all, my philosophy, because it's part of our business to figure out whether people have medical malpractice cases or not. Uh, but my philosophy is that every look is a good look. And so you really have to look through a ton of cases to figure out, uh, to find the ones that are actually worth pursuing. And uh, I think this past year we looked at around 1,500 cases, and we probably took like five of those out of the 1,500. And That's incredible. On more of those, you're spending several thousands of dollars just trying to figure out what happened because sometimes it's not even the medical record. It's not even documented in the medical record exactly what happened to the patient and why this person died or why this person can't walk or why this person's brain damaged. They don't write their confession in the medical records. You literally They a, never do. Have you, ever, have you ever actually seen a confession in a record? Rarely. Uh, the best one that I've seen so far is a CRNA wrote, um, I am not writing a note per my lawyer's advice. Um, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, but that's said enough to me. But to answer your question, um, we look at a, anywhere between 1,000 to 1,500 cases on average. We take you know less than 10 out of those. And the way that we kind of look through the process, because these cases, and I should you know, lay the background for people who are unfamiliar with medical malpractice cases and what we do from a legal side. The the issue is uh, someone is very seriously hurt and either the family knows or half the time the family has no understanding or the patient has no understanding as to what happened. They just know it's a bad outcome. It shouldn't have happened. So we have to get the medical records to figure out, you know, what happened. Are there any clues in the medical records or in the imaging? And then we have in Georgia you uh, to even 
pursue a case, you have to send the medical records and the materials out to a doctor uh, or a nurse, depending upon what the situation is, or both, or multiple doctors, depending upon the specialty, and get affidavits, sworn statements to say this is a legitimate medical malpractice case and the uh, defendant doctor or a healthcare provider in this area uh, violated the standard of care and this is a legitimate case. That's how they theoretically keep out frivolous cases. So it's not that easy, and we spend a lot of money. Uh, on cases that we don't even take, trying to figure out whether it's a case or not. So we have to be very selective in the cases that we choose because, A, there's a lot of bias against medical malpractice cases, medical malpractice lawyers, uh, medical malpractice claimants. If you asked an average person off the street, what do you think of medical malpractice cases, there's a lot of negative attitudes Especially out in Georgia. There in Georgia and elsewhere in the country about medical malpractice cases. And we're the quote unquote sharks out there that are making, you know, things worse for everyone uh, and and for healthcare providers. But um, it's it's a tough road to hoe. There are many more cases that are lost that should be won than the reverse. And even in a case where uh, there's a clear error um, and where the error has been acknowledged, um, there are many cases that are still lost by lawyers um, in front of juries uh, just because uh, a jury isn't willing to commit and say that someone committed malpractice. So to answer the last question, I hate to go on and on, the way that we look at these cases are, the first question is, um, are the damages worth it to fight a case for three to four years and spend, and our average spend on a case to li- in litigation is between 75 and 200 grand? Are we willing to That's spend- money that your firm is investing in the case that if you lose, your firm doesn't get back. Correct. And that's after taxes are paid on that money. So if you're making a $200,000 investment in a case, you can theoretically say that's $400,000 worth of income that the firm made that they have to tie up in this case. So that's a, a risk and an interest-free you know, loan that you're giving to your clients. Um, and so you want to justify the case by the damages. Is this, and so what we ask is, is this person dead, brain damaged, paralyzed, amputated one or more limbs, or just something other that's catastrophic b does it fit within the normal anatomy of a medical malpractice case like is it a failure to diagnose problem whether it's cancer stroke you know whatever an infection is it uh, an anesthesia error is it a birth injury error uh, something that falls within um, the normal anatomy of a case and then third we're always looking for what i call the x factor in the case something just really unconscionable that happens, like they operated on the wrong leg after they marked the right leg, or you know, no one ever checked on the lab result that was ready and available and that had been ordered, and they charged the patient for, and no one ever checked it. Something outrageous that adds an extra heat to that case that can carry that case over the finish line. Right, right. Now that that makes a ton of sense. You know, me and you talk a lot about things that are not necessarily, you know, legal analysis. We talk about marketing, a lot about networking, and a lot about like firm management. And for you to for you to take the time to vet 1500 calls or 1500 emails to say this is a case, that's a huge time suck. And every day you're you're doing something like that. So, I know that you made a very strategic hire recently to free your time up. Um, you hired Wynn Sowersby, um, who was a great hire. Um, talk about the decision to do that and, and what bringing on someone like Wynn has allowed your firm to, to do. Well, um, none of what we do for our clients could be possible without the great help that we get. Um, you know, we're a small, lean and mean shop, so Wynn's been a great addition. She came on board about two years ago. Uh, she has 27 years worth of experience as a staff attorney uh, working for some great judges here in the state, uh, Judge Manis, uh, Judge Besson, Judge Brantley. And when we were looking to hire someone, my philosophy, even though we're lean and mean, uh, is to only hire A-plus people, uh, not only in terms of temperament, uh, but work ethic, and then someone who complements the skills um, that I don't have uh, and brings skills to the table. And so she's been a a huge asset to the firm in uh, having connections and relationships with judges and staff attorneys. She's a great writer. And she uh, just adds a lot of skills and, you know, patience that uh, I, I sometimes don't have on things that uh, uh, she can do for our clients and for other, other people who are interacting with our firm. One, one thing that I, I think our generation of lawyers and certainly the generation just, just younger than us um, 
we don't get in court as much as some of the older folks did. Uh, there's there's many reasons why. Uh, me and you both tried lots of cases, but um, not as much as some of the older folks did. Um, that's just because cases settle more. It's it's more expensive. Whatever. Having someone like Wynn who sat in a courtroom for all those years and has seen everything there could be to be seen in court. I mean, that must be such a big benefit to your firm to know, hey, this is how this is likely to play out. Here's the issue. This is what juries do, right? I mean, is that is that something that you're seeing pay off every day? Uh, absolutely. And I think where I see it play off most with Wynn is um, she knows the way she knows these staff attorneys who are working with the judges and she knows a lot of the judges. And so I think one of our competitive advantages uh, is that whenever we have any motion pending where we're trying to get documents or information about what happened or we're running into trouble with a defense lawyer who's not cooperating, um, we're getting an extra benefit of the doubt, not only in addition to our reputation, uh, but also having win there handling many of those issues who already knows and has a credibility of the judge's staff. That's where we've seen uh, the biggest difference. Um, and, and she's been a huge help in, yeah. in that regard. Now, you don't get calls on 1,500 cases without doing a good job of marketing yourself to both the, the plaintiff's bar, to just the, the legal community on the whole, and then to the community wide. Um, you do a fantastic job of that. Everybody knows Moses. Everybody has great things to say about Moses. Um, and they know the, the kind of work that you do, right? I mean, you're one of the, I mean, I'll say it, one of the three or five plaintiff's lawyers that are practicing medical malpractice at the highest level in this area. Um, I, I believe that. I think a lot of people would agree with me. So what is your approach? I mean, I'm wearing a, a Moses Kim sweet hat right now, the, 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 the Moses Law Firm. We've got some Yetis with, with your firm on it. Like, what is your approach or, and, and what have you seen that's worked in, in marketing? Well, Josh, first of all, you are embarrassingly kind. And I'm wondering, do I have to write you a check after this? Uh, you know, th I think this is... A so first of all, thank you. Um, thank you for, um, for that compliment. Uh, this is my philosophy, and I really learned it as a defense lawyer because even as a defense lawyer, I really hustled to try to be the best that I could be, even as a defense lawyer, not only in getting great results on the defense side, but also marketing as well. And I think marketing for a lot of people is uh, they make it way more complicated than it really is, and I think it boils down to do two things. You're going to get cases from people, A, who know will know and have the confidence that you'll do a good job for them, and B, because they like you. And I don't care whether you're doing plaintiff's work or defense work, those are to the two keys to the marketing that will help you generate cases. And so, A, you know, I always want a reputation and try to, you know, prove to my clients and whoever's paying attention that we'll do a great job for whoever needs a lawyer and who's got a viable case and the medical malpractice role. And then B, you know, I, I hate to sound cliche, but, uh, you know, just be a good person, be fun to be around. Um, people are going to send you work if they like you and you'll, you'll do a good job. And I think that is a, a very poorly understood concept. And so I don't think there's any magic in swag or Yeti cups or hats or anything like that. Um, I, I really think it boils down to people's confidence in you and you being out there and having you know, real relationships with people that like you. I think that's exactly right. I think that when you boil it down like that, it does make a lot of sense. It's a relationship business. Most businesses are, right? You, you want to work with people who you get along with, who you have trust to do a good job, who you like to be around, and that you've had good times with. And so my philosophy when I was a defense lawyer and now was, you know, just showing up is a very big part of it. Yeah, it's half right? the battle, right? I mean, I mean, that's a cliche, but it's true. Putting yourself in a situation where you can meet people and strengthen relationships really is half, is, is half the battle. It's hard to get out there, especially in today's day and age. People got very accustomed to sitting at their houses and not going anywhere, right? We got a little lazy, but that's not the way to go about it. I mean, with the plaintiff's bar, you could find some sort of event every week to go to, right? Um, I'm not saying you got to do that, but you need to make an effort to go to these places and meet these people. Um, every time, you know, we text before every big event, because I know you're going to be there, right? I mean, you don't really miss many of them. I, I try to go to a lot of them. And that's where you make relationships. Absolutely. And, and then I think the second part of that is when you go, it's not like just go and check a box 
eat some dinner and go home. It's like go and talk to people and don't be afraid to stick around toward close to the end because, you know, I, I used to find that the first four hours of an event are not as important as the last one hour. That's you know right. what I mean? Right, right. Like, like that last hour when it's getting a little smaller and people have had a couple drinks and, and people are having more fun. Like that's really where a lot of the magic happens. And so I think that you do a good job of that. I try to do a good job of that. Um, and that really is the cornerstone for a good marketing campaign. I think not even campaign, but just a good marketing strategy. Well, that's why you're so successful in doing what you're doing. You're out there. I mean, if you don't show up, people aren't going to know what you do. But I think it really goes along with, um, you know, you can be the most talented and skilled and technical expert in whatever. But if people don't like you, they ain't going to send you any work or they're not going to want to work with you. And it doesn't matter whether you're in a plaintiff's firm or defense shop. I think this is something that I tell uh, young lawyers who are doing defense work, um, that you can be the best biller, the best legal scholar, the best writer, but if people don't like you, you're going to tap out at a certain level, probably before you make partner at your law firm. But if you're halfway decent at writing and halfway decent managing discovery or whatever you have to do as an associate, but you are extremely well-liked in the power structure of that firm, you're going to make it a partner. And so it's, you know, we as small business owners who have to be the lawyer, the office administrator, the marketer or whatever, we wear a lot of hats and you got to realize you got to do a good job and, you know, be liked at the same time. Um, And, and, that's hard. That can be hard to do. Yeah. One thing that I know you do a lot of is play golf with, with, you know, colleagues, right? Um, me and you play a lot of golf together. I think that people that don't play golf are losing out on a very good opportunity to strengthen relationships with people. And it's just a lot of fun. Now you picked up golf a little later, right? Which is why I'm so terrible. <laughs> you get, every time I play, you get better <laughs> though. And that's the whole, that's the whole point. You know, you're getting better. I wouldn't say you're terrible. Um, keep, you know, we're all getting, we're all trying to get better at golf. But um, what made you pick up golf as a, as a hobby? Was it work related or was it just, hey, I want, want to learn to play? You know, not to be too serious again, but when I was growing up uh, in enterprise, you know, I was a preacher's kid. So, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. You know, we weren't dirt poor, but, you know, I didn't have Jordans to wear to walk into school. And some of my best friends, uh, one of them who's now a plaintiff's lawyer at Motley Rice in North in North in South Carolina, excuse me, um, him and uh, his dad was an orthodontist. My other friend's dad was a general contractor, and my other friend's dad was like basically a colonel in uh, the U.S. Army. So all their families did really well, and so they all all three of them played a lot of golf. The bottom line was we were too poor to play golf, and so when I got to law school, I told myself, well. Um, I want to learn to play golf because I think, you know, not only is it fun to be outside and something I always wanted to do but didn't really have the opportunity to do, I want to pass this skill on, you know, to my kids so they didn't have to grow up like I did. And also, you know, they can develop the relationships that that people do on, on golf courses. Um, and so I, I really agree with you. Like some of the best re- friends that I have are people that I've played a lot of golf with because you're spending four to six hours with someone on a beautiful day outside, hopefully having a great drink and maybe a cigar um, and uh, just enjoying yourself. And it doesn't really matter how good you are um, as long as you don't slow up the game. Um, the, the other thing about so, golf that, that every April, I know exactly where you're going to be. That's right. Where Gusta is that? National. Gusta National. <laughs> that, you, you, you circle that on your calendar, and you know you're going to make it there at least one of those days. Uh, I try my darndest. I think you've been pretty darn successful. What, what is it about Augusta National that just draws you there? Have you ever been? Yes, I okay. have. All right. And it's, so, to me, it's just it's the best place on earth if you're a golf fan I, or if you're just a fan of just life. The best way that's been expressed is it's a grown man's Disney World. That's right. Um, because uh, it is absolutely beautiful. Uh, everything has a darker shade of a color. The grass is indeed greener. The sand is wider. The pine straw is browner. And uh, it, it looks so perfect. It looks There's nothing fake. out of place. It, 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 absolutely. It, look, it looks so perfect. It looks fake. And there's not a better time um, that I've ever had at a sporting event um, than going to Augusta National during the Masters. We, all, we always laugh. We went several years in a row. Um, and no matter what the weather was like leading up to it, somehow those azaleas, they just turn on a button, right? It's amazing. And it just pops. 
And no matter what the weather was the night before, because they get some bad weather come through there. By the time the grounds open at 7 a.m. and the patrons come through, it's completely clean and beautiful. I don't know how they do it. Um, I've never gotten the chance to play there. I've never gotten close to a chance to play there, but that's one of my life goals is to, is to, you know, become friendly with somebody or have some sort of connection where that happens. I'm sure between you and your friends, you have some CEO friend out there that will uh, take pity on us and take us out of the gutter. Well, I, I'm, I'm looking for one. So if anybody's <laughs> listening that, that need, that needs a, you know, needs a friend, I, I'm here. Um, does your son, is he into golf at all? He is. I mean, he hasn't gotten the bug yet cause he's only seven, but uh, he gets lessons and plays and, you know, I think hopefully as he gets older, he'll he'll take a liking to it. Right now, he's all about basketball. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about basketball in a minute. My my, my son, um, he's a big baseball player, and he'll go out to the driving range and and play. And he's got a really good swing, and he can hit it really well. But he doesn't have the patience yet to go and and play nine holes or six holes or whatever. I mean, I didn't start playing until I was in college, so I get it. I mean, it's a it's a slow game. These younger kids, it's hard to keep their attention. But my God, what better gift to give somebody than having them pick up a golf club at seven, eight, nine years old. And then for the rest of their life, they're the good golfers in the group, which everybody wants to be the good golfer in the group. Well, you know, lucky for you and your son, you have athletic genes that you'll pass along. And he might actually do extremely well at baseball, which I know he's already very good at. You know, I'm hoping that given my shorter stature of my son, uh, will take a liking to golf because I think you can actually get really good at golf even though you may not be huge. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I want to talk about one more law thing with you um, because I have started to do more focus groups in my practice. And, and for those listening, a focus group, well, I'll let you describe it because you do a lot of them. But um, you introduced me to a certain way of doing it. And in your cases, you've been known to do three, four, five, six different focus groups in a case. Um, Talk about what a focus group is. Talk about what you learn from them and, and how it's helped you get some really good results. A focus group is exactly you know what it sounds like. You bring random people together just like you would, and you want to try to mimic a jury like you're in a courtroom, and you present the case, and you f- try to figure out what's important in the case and what's not. Uh, the interesting thing about focus groups is that, um, and, and for lawyers, is that people will latch on to the most random things in cases, some of which are very relevant uh, and some of which ten, turn out to be not relevant at all. But then you've got all multiple people across multiple focus groups asking the same stuff. And so you learn a lot of information about you know what your case is all about, what the strengths are, what the weaknesses are, what the common questions are. And that enlightens you so that you can more effectively tap into those same issues when you get to a jury trial. And what you want is basically a practice run in presenting your case and understanding the strengths and weaknesses. And I think one of the great traits of talented lawyers and trial lawyers is they know the weaknesses of their case better than anyone, even better than the defense. And they're able to sum it up much more cleanly than the defense as well. And so that's one of the keys that we're after in these focus groups. And uh, during the pandemic, I've been accustomed to focus groups from from uh, the plaintiff shop that I was at. We would routinely do those in every case. Uh, but during the pandemic, when during the first six months we were twiddling our thumbs, I thought, well, why don't we start doing some focus groups um, over Zoom and quit wasting our time and making our time worthwhile. And it's just been a, a tremendous benefit to our clients in our cases. Well, that's one of the technical things you taught me was – look, we have this Zoom technology available to us. We can find 12 people over social media, right? You can, you can send an ad out to ask folks to apply to join a focus group. You can, you can you know, curate it by where they live, age, uh, income level, job, whatever you want to do. And then you just present the case over Zoom. Don't ever have to leave your house or your, or your office and you get just amazing feedback. I mean, one thing that after every time you try a case, you go talk to the jury, how they come up with this, what was important to that, and you'll hear something that you're like, what the hell? That's what you latched on to? Like of all this stuff, you made your decision based on that. I didn't even think of it, right? But in a focus group, if you do as many as, as we're doing now, you're going to hear that and your chances of being able to present that small little nuanced issue in a favorable way just goes up. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's our obligation to our clients to understand our cases at that level to understand what motivates people to 
uh, side with you in a case. Um, you know, if there's a common question that keeps popping up that appears irrelevant to the case, you know that you've got to address that uh, some, at some point in the case so you can mark that question off people's list. And then you also even learn about, like, you know, what's the jury profile that you're looking for? Who's going to be good for you? Is it going to be a suburban mom who's going to be really sympathetic to your client? Uh, or is it going to be the conservative farmer, you know, that's going to be helpful to your client? Or who's going to be unhelpful to your client? So I think focus groups are a treasure trove of information. Uh, I think a lot of people are just kind of fearful of them because they don't know how to put them together or they're not sure how much it's going to help the case. I mean, it's obviously not free, but, you know, I'm here to tell you that it can be done relatively inexpensively. And, you know, for the right case, it's actually uh, not as bad as you would think. No, I agree. We, we're doing it much more routinely now. I remember 10 years ago when we would ask our insurance company clients um, for the authority to go to do a focus group, we would say it'd be about $5,000-ish to go hire a company and go to their facility. And it's not like that anymore. Yeah. You can do it for a whole lot cheaper and get the same amount of results. So we're doing them a lot. I mean, one of the things that we, we kind of go, we wrestle with is, when we get a focus group that is like super uh, bullish on our case in terms of, we always ask them at the end to, to give a number. Um, I know sometimes some people don't do that. We always do. Um, I want to share that with the defense attorney. I'm like, look, dude, here are the 12, you know, handwritten or email responses. Um, this is what people are thinking. We haven't done that yet. I don't know if you do or heard people do that. I've shared with mediators before. I've said, hey, look, Mr. Mediator, here's, you know, here's the 12 numbers we got. Don't ask me the value. I'm telling you. Do you ever do something like that? I think it's important to do that, um, especially if the other side is serious about trying to get the case resolved. I think it's critical information, and people can dispute, you know, the veracity and the reliability of those numbers. But, you know, that's a data point that could be helpful to you in getting the case done uh, in a case that needs to be settled. And so if you're not using that data, if it can be helpful to you in a case that can and should be settled, um, if you're not doing that, I think that hurts your case. I mean, we should be using that data and holding it out there as a stick um, because that's what motivates the fear is what motivates the insurers and the defendants to pay. So my last question for you on the legal side, and I want to talk some sports with you, is um, getting, the, get, getting the confidence and the gumption to say no when there are good offers being made on tough cases. Um, it's something that we all have a hard time doing because you have a client looking at you that's like, this is life-changing money and we have to say well it is but you potentially could be looking at more like in your brain how have you come to a place where you're comfortable with the concept where you need to say no sometimes yeah well i think that's a, a great question and it really ties into this issue of focus groups um, my philosophy as a lawyer is to get fair value on every case and hopefully it's better than average value uh, I, I know you've heard the saying that anyone can settle a $10 million case for a million dollars. You know, if it's a $10 million case, we're demanding $10 million. How do we know it's a $10 million case? We run a bunch of focus groups, and uh, all those focus groups say, you know, it was $10 million. Or you get into a range, and all the focus groups are coming back between, you know, 15 and $25 million, or whatever the case may be. Right. And by the time you've run multiple focus groups, you just develop a level of confidence in your case to know this is what the fair value is. And you're the only one probably with any actual data of whatever reliability uh, to be able to use that. Um, you had mentioned that on the defense side, they'll run focus groups you know, for $5,000. I remember interacting with companies that were actively charging $25,000, $50,000. Um, I think a lot of that is you know, catered toward the large corporations who are willing to pay that, but that also makes the corporations and the insurance companies uh, less motivated to run those focus groups. So um, the way that we become bullish about a case is we actually develop data from focus groups. Smart, yeah, and then share it. Makes total sense. Well, well thank you for all that very good knowledge information. Um, I found it helpful. Hope everybody else here does as well. All right, I'm going to switch gears to something else that will put a smile on your face. Um, Enterprise Alabama, are those Auburn fans or Alabama fans traditionally? You know, Traditionally, uh, Auburn because it's closer to Auburn. You are neither. 
Technically, neither. Okay. You're but they re- make, make you decide in kindergarten on the first day. And so wh- wh- which side of the fence did you fall on? I, I declared Auburn just right. because that's what my friends were doing. All right. So so when all, when Alabama plays Georgia, who are you rooting for? I got a, a pull for Georgia. There you go. Very good. Now, your love, though, is UNC basketball. Love the Tar Heels. Which I like the Tar Heels, too. I feel like they're one of those schools, especially the basketball team, that are kind of universally liked, right? Like, they, I guess maybe it goes back to Michael Jordan's age. I don't know. Or Michael Jordan's day. But everybody kind of knows their players. Everybody kind of follows them. At least that's, that's kind of my take. Um, what made you end up in Chapel Hill originally? And then talk about your love for the Tar Heel, Tar Heel program. Um, I will answer that question. But I want to comment on something that you touched on. In North Carolina, there are two serious basketball schools. One is the University of the People, which is North Carolina. The other one is the University of the Sons of the Privileged, which you know what school that is. We'll, we'll talk about that and in a minute, so, too. Uh, yes. With respect to the University of the People, um, I knew that I wanted to come back to Atlanta after law school. And so I was looking for a good law school in the southeast um, that would give me that opportunity to do so in a reputable school and something different than Emory. Because you're Emory undergrad, which does not have a, an athletic program, D1 to speak of. They have a D3 program, which, you know, they're great in a number of things. In now D3. My dad's an Emory grad. That's awesome. And, and um, did he play any sports there? No. Okay. No. He's a Georgia uh, fan now. All, all of his kids went to Georgia. So shout out to my dad. Shout out to Emory. Go ahead. Shout out to Mr. Stein. There you go. <laughs> Um, uh, is it Dr. Stein? Yeah. Mr. Excuse me, Dr. Stein. Uh, but in any event, um, I wanted to stay in the Southeast. And like North Carolina was like a, a totally different experience. It's a public school. And um, it had a D1 sports program, obviously a great basketball program. And it just really allowed me to tap into all the excitement of college sports. That that was kind of the experience that I did not get at Emory. I loved my experience at Emory, but it was a totally different and really fun experience uh, getting to experience the uh, Carolina sports and in particular basketball. So you were there 01 to 04, which I think they won a championship right after you left. Is that correct? Right? Okay. 05. 05. Now we were talking beforehand and you were telling me that you went back to Chapel Hill and watched one of the finals in the Dean Dome. Correct. Okay. Talk correct. about that. Oh, that was incredible. That was uh, in 05 um, with, um, uh, Rashad McCants, Ray Felton, um, and uh, they were playing Illinois, and uh, it was just a packed house in the Dean Dome. You know, the Dean Dome seats like 21,000 people, which is the same size as my hometown of Enterprise, Alabama. And the same size as most of the pro, pro arenas. Yeah. Right? What does State Farm hold? Less than uh, that, maybe. Yeah, somewhere 18. around that ballpark. Yeah. Uh, but it's a big stadium, and to have that place filled up with a bunch of students, and that game was so good because it came down to like the last minute and a half. I remember, I think it was Darren Williams was that point guard for Illinois who's playing or did play uh, pro ball. a great ball. career with the Nets. Yep, yep. And uh, it just came down to the last minute and a half, and that place exploded, and then Franklin Street. So I was going to say, is Franklin Street the main drag in Chapel Hill? Yeah, I've never I been. Mean, um, my friend Tom Ludlam, who you know, yes. and you know his wife Taylor, she was in Classmate, your classmate, yep. right? Yeah, they live there, and it's my fault. I'm not not there to visit them, but um, he's always talking about Franklin Street and just downtown Chapel Hill, and he says it's a lot like Athens. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a beautiful place, and especially you know after that game, this every, all the students flood the streets. They're like throwing. Uh, they're they built bonfires uh, in the middle of the intersection and. People are climbing up light poles and trees. It's crazy. But it was an awesome experience. So you mentioned a few of the players on that team. Um, who were some of your just all-time – I mean, the list of UNC all-time greats can go on forever. But who, who do you look back on and say, oh, I, li- I like those, those few players? See, I've got top three. Okay. For, uh, the w- number one's obvious, right? Michael Jordan. Has to I be. mean, that would be sacrilege not to name him as number one. And that just speaks for itself. It's its like story. a Georgia fan having mentioned Herschel Walker. Not quite, but but I'm not saying they're the same, but it's the same thing. It's like, you know, right? That big he's, the, he's the guy in the program. Michael Jordan, yeah. different hem, you know, strategy than Herschel Walker, but you get my point. Go ahead. But Michael Jordan's got to be number one. Uh, number two, I was living in um, uh, Chapel Hill at the time that Tyler Hansborough was there, and he was such an incredible, like, dominant force in college basketball. Unfortunately, his pro career did not pan out as being as dominant, but he was a total beast. He was, as they called him, Psycho T. He was an absolute giant on the basketball court. 
and uh, there were a lot of incredible wins that he brought to Carolina. So he'd be number two. And then number three, I really love Danny Green's game. I don't know if you remember him. Wow, okay. But Danny Green is kind of like, he always had a chip on his shoulder, and deservedly so, because he was a six-man off the bench um, on his team. And I'm trying to remember who else was on his team. Wayne Ellington was on there, Ty Lawson. But Danny Green, who's had you know probably the best NBA career out of all those guys, was coming off the bench shooting threes. I'm like, even at that time, I knew Roy Williams was riding him unfairly hard, probably to got, try to get him to be to play better. But he was always kind of riding him as like redheaded stepchild on the team when he should have been starting. And he turned out to be, you know, one of the best players in the NBA from the Carolina squad. Shows you how deep those teams are if you have that that guy sitting on the bench coming in. So so my, my uh, non-UNC graduate list of players are kind of the ones that most people have heard of. Love Vince Carter. I liked him. I liked him in college. And I liked him. He was in the Hawks last year. At, right. I think he's, he's about our age. I mean, it, you know. People are going to criticize me for not naming him, and I presume the next person you're going to name. Well, the four, right? <laughs> it's Anton Jameson, Vince Carter, Stackhouse, and of course. Wallace. Of course. But again, you, your answers were much more dialed in to your personal uh, you know, likes, which is great. Now, Jameson and Carter, were they the ones that were together at the same time? Because remember, there was a moment where like, but those, but those four, they came in as pairs, if I remember. Yeah, I think that's right. And I just can't remember. The reason why I'm dialed in on the younger crowd is because that's when, when I was you were there, there, like very focused on Carolina basketball. But uh, those guys are giants and Hall of Famers in the Carolina basketball world. So, so I was more focused on college basketball in high school. Gotcha. Which, which makes yeah, of sense. Course. When I got to Georgia, it was all college football. Georgia basketball, we've discussed this before, does not exist. Kareem killed the, has killed the program. Um, and since then, like, I just don't get that into it. So in my mind, those guys stand out. But another couple, Eric Montross. Of course. He always jumps out to me. George Lynch of course. always jumps out to me. Um, and then the one guy who, who Hawks fans hate to talk about is Marvin Williams. Of course. Right? Um, I heard the workout he put on before the draft was like next level stuff. That when the, the Hawks executive saw him, they're like, this dude's like Michael Jordan. And remember, they took him over, I think, Chris Paul, who we all know that decision. And poor Marvin, he just, he just, pan he out. just never panned out. Um, but, I mean, y'all like him at UNC, right? Oh. He, had a, he, had he, he is a legend because he hit the game-winning shot as a freshman against Duke when they were down by nine with three minutes to go. And uh, he had that crazy dunk as well where he had the hand behind his head. But Well, talk about Duke. Is that who you were referring to in your you earlier? Know, I hate to acknowledge, but, you know, I would have to say yes. So is that just, just you know, branded into your brains when you step foot in Chapel Hill? Like, Pretty we, much. We hate Duke. Pretty much. Does, anybody, like does, whole... he, does anybody like Duke other than people who went there or who live in, in, in the city? You, uh, predominantly, but you have a surprising smattering of people who uh, – are big Duke fans who have no connection whatsoever to Duke. Um, but in all fairness, you know, it's an excellent basketball program. Obviously, an incredible coach who's had a long history of excellence, which, you know, if you really boil, boil it down for Carolina folks, even though we like to talk smack against Duke, uh, there's a lot of respect between the programs and a lot of respect for Coach K. How about Cameron Indoor? You been there? I have. Now, I've not. I heard it's described as like a high school gym, tiny on top of everything. What was your experience there? It's a dirty, ugly high school gym. (laughs) (laughs) You've said that before, haven't you? (laughs) Exactly. But but I I do have to finish my thought because you got me thinking about all these incredible Carolina alums. One thing I love about Danny Green, because I'm going to defend my uh, my argument about that is one thing I love about Danny Green is he never gave up. Yeah, He never gave up, even though he was the sixth man on the team and he, he did get drafted and he ended, he never gave up. And well, that I think, brings us to Jimmy Valvano, NC State, right? Right. right? Um, is there much of a hatred or a dislike between NC State and UNC or is it just kind of like, you know? No, there is a for NC State folks, by the way, I get so annoyed on on basketball common, uh, commenters, uh, commentators who always say North Carolina State. They don't call it that in North Carolina. It's NC State. Um, but in any event, they view it as a very fierce rivalry. And I'd say, you know, there are some legitimate rivalry attitudes there, but not to the Carolina uh, Duke level. 
All right, I'm going to give you four Duke players' names, and you tell me thumbs up or thumbs down your opinion about them. Okay. Okay? Christian Leitner. <clears throat> Man, you're off to a strong start, my friend. You know, he's like the quintessential uh, Duke player. Uh, no offense to anyone, and, and I don't mean to throw the race card in there, but the Caucasian player who's cocky and arrogant and who's actually good. Um, quintessential, and I know the names that are coming, but quintessential Duke player. <laughs> Do you like him or no? Um, I respect his game. Uh, but as a Carolina fan, how can you say you like all right. him and, and those of his ilk? <laughs> Bobby Hurley. Um, I, definitely big name. Uh, I really don't view him as kind of like an evil villain uh, the way I view Duke basketball. <laughs> Grant Hill. Um, I actually like Grant Hill, uh, surprisingly so, because uh, um, every time I've heard him speak, he's like speaks professionally. Um, so I like him. So I ended up at a lunch um, where uh, with, with Grant Hill. He just happened to join us at lunch. Um, he couldn't have been cooler. This was like a yeah. year or so ago. Um, we got there at uh, I don't know, like twelve one o'clock. And a couple hours later, we're still sitting there just kind of shooting the shit Where with Grant this? talking. Um, uh, we're someplace over over in uh, Linux Mall. I can't, I can't remember. Well, I've heard he's really cool. And- he, he, he's, he's cool, so I like him. Um, he was a hawk for a while. You know, he does a good job. On, on The thing about Duke players is, you know, they all end up doing pretty well. Not necessarily in the league, right? I mean, they the, the, the successes are like thereof, and the NBA is, is long chronicle. But they all have pretty good post you know, kind of right, post-basketball right, careers right. are smart. All right, la- last name, J.J. Redick. Oh, um, that would be in the Christian Leitner category. So I uh, like J.J. Redick. <laughs> he's a great shooter. He's a great – I didn't like him in, at Duke. Um, I didn't really care much about him at Duke, but I think that his NBA career surprised everybody. Well, he was a stud even in college. He was like our arch nemesis so, uh, so back he, in the day. So he has made – Probably over a hundred million dollars in the NBA. He's a great player. He deserves it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'd say in terms of the most hate for Carolina fans, the most hated players, I would say Leitner, Reddick, Wojciechowski, and unfortunately Coach Shire. <laughs> There you go. Uh, all right, you hit it all. But, you know, that, that's the profile that's the profile. Of the Duke player, right? That's the profile. Slap well, on the floor. Well, one day me and you will have to go attend a um, – we'll have to attend a UNC-Duke game because that's something that's on my list. Um, like I said, my friends, the Ludlums live up there, so that will be a, a good excuse for us to go. Is, is there a UNC club like here in Atlanta that you can go to to watch the games? Yes. Um, we've got the Atlanta-Carolina club, and everyone may know uh, Greg Parent, who is a fixture in that as well as – uh, in the General Alumni Association. And, but the, the bar is Hudson Grill. It's been for a long time. Yeah. Uh, it was Cheyenne Grill for a while, and then, but I believe that place closed. So the most predominant place is the Hudson Grill in Midtown. Yeah, I was going to ask about Greg. He, he's the, he's the you, know, you and him are probably the, the, the two biggest, you know, at least in the plaintiff's bar, Tar Heel fans. He, I'm he, a far second to him. He, he, he's got all the Jordan shoes and all of it. So that's cool. Y'all can get together. Um, well, Mose, this has been great. Um, I've had a good time. We could continue talking about the law and, and, and about you know, basketball forever. Is there anything else that you want to cover about your firm or anything else about kind of the work you do that we can get a chance to talk enough about? Oh, gosh. You know, I'm just honored to be here with you. Josh, it's exciting uh, to participate in this program with you. I think uh, you're just so loved by so many uh, lawyers and people out there. It's an honor to uh, share this time. And I appreciate all your listeners listening in. And of course, uh, if there's anything that we can help uh, people with in the med mal front, um, the Moses firm is uh, hopefully a call that you'll make. Well, tell people where they can find you, website, uh, social media, things of that nature. Yeah. I mean, our website is themosesfirm.com. And uh, if you Google Moses Kim attorney, it should pop right up or the Moses firm, it should pop right up. So one thing I've never asked you, but I'm curious about, and I meant to ask you earlier, is how did you arrive at the name The Moses Firm? That's your first name. Every other person I know has gone with their last name. Talk us quickly about that decision. Well, I think it was uh, really kind of reflecting on what our brand, what I wanted our brand to be. And uh, just growing up in Alabama, being sensitive to, you know, being a Korean kid in South Alabama, literally so far in the deep south that it's 30 minutes from Florida, um, it made me sensitive to that. And I wanted people to choose our firm 
based upon the quality of our work and not, frankly, you know, our heritage or the Understood. color of our skin. And so I, I, although I'm very proud of uh, being Korean and my family being Korean immigrants, and I believe we've lived a success story uh, as immigrants here in the U.S., I wanted people to choose our firm based upon the quality of our work. And, and, and I did not want people to be shied away uh, from our firm uh, because of our name. Understood. Got it. Now, I'm, I feel like I'm at a deposition saying, I only have one more question, but I do have one more. <laughs> That's okay. Um, Keep them coming. Your, your wife is a lawyer, too. She is. And, a she's, a, and, and she's a lovely lady. Um, how does she end up with you? You know, I have absolutely no idea, but I guess I just have to say my my personality is off the charts because otherwise she wouldn't be with me. <laughs> what, what kind of work does she do? She's an employment lawyer. Very good. Well, shout out to her. Uh, I saw her last week at your house. She's just as lovely as they come. Um, we'll have her on the podcast down the road too. She would love family. It. All right, Moses. Well, thank you so much. It's been a really good time. It's honored uh, to be here. talking to you. And uh, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please give it a five-star review and make sure to subscribe. Until next time, hold your head up high and keep chopping.